Good afternoon all, Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day is off to a fantastic start. Today we have a guest for the second time, one of our favorite guests, Elizabeth Morgan. Elizabeth, how are you today? I'm great, so glad to be here. Likewise, likewise. Thanks so much for your time. I know you're going a mile a minute, I think every second. <laughs> so today I wanted to talk about something that you and I have talked about a little bit just as I've gotten to know you and a lot of our clients and people we work with always inquire about it and discuss it. The concept of the family office, which we touched on at the end of our last podcast. So when I say family office, I remember when we wrapped up um, our, our last call, our last podcast, you mentioned there's there's two styles or two versions of it, or I should say two ways it's often thought about. And we could start there if you'd like, because when you said that, I mean, I think of one type of family office. So I'll turn it over to you and let you kind of explain that so I can grasp it better. <laughs> Sure. So, you know, the, the family office mm -hmm. word um, is used a lot nowadays, the, you know, kind of concept of a family office. Um, so in its purest sense, a family office is uh, an office where the family runs its affairs. So you might have um, actually individuals, a C, you know, CPAs, uh, lawyers, et cetera, who help the family, bookkeepers, um, stay on top of, you know, really everything from pet care to life insurance to investments. So that's kind of in its purest sense what a family office might look like. What, what if you go and search family office, what you'll end up with though more often is groups of people who are looking for investments. So a lot of the family office construct um, has been diverted into an investment mechanism. So just know that if you're out Googling, you know, family office, if you're wondering why most of those uh, productions, programs, et cetera, the educational programs are meant to bring wealthy families together, um, for investment purposes. Now there's, it's a good way for wealthy people to figure out what other wealthy people are doing, meet them, run ideas by them. There is that kind of collegial aspect to it, but on the whole, it's a way for them to join together in doing private equity transactions. Gotcha. Now, that being said, there is another concept of family office that I really like. And that is more of an idea of a family bank, uh, more uh, something that I grew up seeing in, uh, well, really mostly with the Hong Kong Chinese communities who didn't have bank, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, you know, availability of, of liquidity in, in the old days. So, they and you know coming from a society where they're having a, a lot of liquidity and availability to um, funds that just really wasn't easy to do. What they would do uh, is they would use high cash value life insurance on the members of the family as a way to fund the future liabilities of the family 
building what was in essence a family bank, kind of like what you saw with the Swiss families or the European families in the old days, which, you know, they weren't really building it using life insurance, but the, uh, the Hong Kong Chinese were doing that in droves. And when I was working for the Bank of Bermuda, helping with a lot of these structures where there were US beneficiaries, I was first exposed to that concept. So if you think about it, um, it's very similar to a non-qualified deferred comp plan that corporations would use to fund a future liability for an executive. These families are taking that same idea and using it as a way to fund the future liabilities for the family so that they can serve as their own banks for, you know, to encourage entrepreneurship and independence in the family. Gotcha. Beautiful. Now, thanks for, for explaining that. And the idea of the family bank, I mean, we'll often market the idea of the banking concept, right? So there's a book out there that talks, there's several books out there, the originals, Becoming Your Own Banker, that I'll say exposed it a lot to the general public, that idea of using a cash value life insurance policy like a bank. But it's always interesting to me where what you're mentioning is overseas and people, wealthy families really creating their own bank. And what I like so much with just in learning this stuff is it's not, it's not exclu exclusive to people with just money. Like any, anyone can do it. And with policy design, if you want to get technical or just on a planning aspect, like anyone can do it. It's just really having the awareness of what it is, number one. And then number two, how to set it up properly, who to work with, how to have the actual policy set up, the plan set up, and then use it in your life, whether it's for business, for personal use, whatever your plans or, or desires are. Yeah, it's just an amazing tool. I, um, I've, I've spent a lot of my career um, outside the United States and I really enjoy studying cultural differences. And one of the things that's interesting, some of the cultures that haven't been able to get out of poverty, if you look at kind of their cultural normative approaches, they don't have the concept of life insurance. Yeah. So even in, even in the United States, in some of the work that I've done, one of the things I've noticed is certain communities don't buy life insurance. And as a result, that means that generationally, they're not able to cover the debts, the funeral costs, et cetera. If they had only had, now this is buying life insurance for a death benefit, mm -hmm. but even a little term policy can make the difference between a family going into poverty at the death of the breadwinner versus one that's able to overcome that situation. So that's kind of outside the scope of this family. But to your mm -hmm. point that it's not just for wealthy people. Yeah. It's very, very important for, uh, you know, and, and it's one of the reasons why our, um, our tax system does not tax the, uh, you know, income inside a policy because at a time when we were smart enough to realize the value of things like asset protection, you know, protecting a homestead for a spouse, the economic devastation that can be wrought on a family 
if these assets aren't protected, we protected life insurance. And so it's an incredibly important tool for you know individuals and culturally it's very very important yeah no that's extremely interesting because because my background before i learned about business and how to talk to people i I was in a back office and my role was to model policies for serps executive benefit plans and what you described from the family concept right there it's it's the exact same thing businesses are just using it corporations small and large are using it as a means for that that long-term planning, where you've got that death benefit and cost recovery all comes back tax-free to the company. But then at the same time, they're using the actual high cash value policy, the cash value as an asset on their balance sheet. They can use it really as a line of credit call it that if they want to tap into it, they're the owner, they have access to it. But then the beautiful piece, and I appreciate this more as a business owner, is how these plans are always structured is, let's say I'm your employee, and you take out a CERP plan on me, you could say to me, hey, Steve, I'm going to pay you a retirement benefit down the road. What what I'm going to do is take this life insurance policy out out on you. I, Elizabeth, am the beneficiary. I'm going to pay the premium. I have control of the cash value. Of course, I'm going to question you and say like, well, what's in it for me? Like, are you going to like kill me off early or something like that? (laughs) What's what's going on? Yeah, but the the ultimate pitch or the benefit to me is you'd say, well, if you stay with me for the predetermined vesting period, which could be until I'm 65, could be performance-based, could be 10 years, it's whatever the business wants, you would say to me, okay, you stayed for the vesting period, I'm going to pay you a retirement benefit from 65 until the day you die of 50,000, 100,000 per year. That's all modeled out beforehand which you're paying me now that I've retired from the cash values of the product you've built up. So it doesn't impact your cash flow. So now you're paying me. And then when I eventually die, that death benefit flows back to the company as a means of cost recovery. It's, it's interesting how it, how that kind of came from what you just mentioned there, just in studying families and what they've done. I just thought it was a way corporations always maximize their, their present value by retaining their top talent, which generates revenue, and then ultimately getting all their money back through the death benefit. I'm like, that's a cool, cool thing. And I like the numbers, so I just did it. <laughs> right. Well, and and before I kind of extrapolate a bit back to the family, the wonderful thing about um, these supplemental executive retirement plans, non-qualified yep. plans, and just for the listening audience, non-qualified means there is no current tax benefit, so as opposed to qualified. But the wonderful thing about them is because they're non-qualified, we don't have to jump through all of the ERISA hoops that we would have to jump through if it was a qualified, you know, uh, tax-free plan. So so that's, but, but what's great about those for owners, whether the owner is a family or a corporation, is the arbitrage, because now you have cash, right? You've got guarantees. And because, you know, as long as it's structured well with a good company, banks will lend against that cash value. So you don't necessarily have to take it out if you're earning 4%. And, and, you know, right now we're in an environment with pretty low interest rates. But if you're earning 4% and you can get a loan at 2% from a bank, then you have a 2% arbitrage inside the policy. So 
you know, for families that works beautifully too, because you, 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 you aren't losing the availability of, you know, accessing those assets if, if you need them. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I love that. And right now, I mean, people we work with are doing that across the board, leveraging their policies with lenders. Because if you look at a, a high cash value life insurance policy, like you mentioned, that's well structured with a minimal premium, maximum cash allocation, it'll produce realistically right around that 4% range, three to five is usually what I say, state just to set expectations properly. That's going to be the net internal rate of return when you look at it at the end of the day. Now, if you do things right, that's also a tax-free yield, which is nice. It's a peace of mind product. But if I'm earning 4% tax-free and I go to borrow from the insurance company, loan interest rates on products are still between 5 and 6%. There's some out there that are a little bit lower, but still 5 to 6%, like right now, that's high. It is relative to what you can get elsewhere and just building awareness there. So many people aren't aware of the fact that you can take a product, a cash value policy to a bank, to a lender, assign a portion of the cash values collateral and get a line of credit. And if it's for business purposes, right on the bank's paperwork, that's a business loan. You've got a potential tax deduction. Now, all of a sudden, it makes it that that much better. It's, It's fun. You can really do a lot of damage with that. In a good right. way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah in, a, in a really good way. And there are some banks that um, understand the benefit of this who are um, who have as part of their business plan to fund these loans against those policies because that collateral, especially if it's a good company, they um, you know th- the way that the regulations are structured for bank assets that is a much better asset than real estate or some of the other collateral that they could lend against. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and, and in the family context, um, you know, if you think about it, you know, in the corporate context where they, there was a policy on an executive, the executive dies, the death benefit comes back into the company in the family context. If you have a large enough family, now you've insured, you know, husband, wife, children, nieces, nephews, you know, et cetera. So that as, you know, people die, now the family has the wherewithal to withstand the death of that individual. And the family now has a bank of cash that it can use to lend to the various family members to start businesses or to invest in businesses. Um, So, in any event, the this product, the and the benefit, I know a lot of your listeners already know, but from my standpoint as a lawyer, um, I want as little cost of insurance as possible. Um, and that corridor is what drives the cost in one of these products. So the reason Steve and I keep talking about high cash value is the higher the cash value the smaller the corridor, which is the difference between what the cash value is and the death benefit that has to be maintained. So when I'm looking at it from a planning standpoint, that's what I'm looking for. I want very small corridor, small cost, because that allows my investment to grow tax-free at a faster rate 
because I don't have the friction of the insurance cost. Yeah, no, beautiful explanation, especially for not having a life insurance license, by the way, of that. <laughs> so on that point too, I mean, what I look for, because that a lot of people we work with love digging into the details. When I look at a high cash value policy, it's like, okay, how do I make sure truly that my expenses are at the absolute minimum and the cash value is maximized? Because that's why people often buy it. At least people we work with, death benefits important long-term, but the cash, that's their driver often. So really what to look for. I mean, the technical design, we go through that. When you look at high cash value life insurance products, particularly whole life products, Typically, it depends on the product, but that cash value, like a great indicator, is looking at the first year, depends on the product again, the lowest that should ever be should be 85% of whatever the first year payment is. But then really, you can get that up to 95% if it's a high early cash value product, very close to your full deposit, breaking even between three and five. And these are with traditional whole life insurance products that everyone has access to, not just individuals putting in half a million or a million per year. Someone could literally put in $10,000 per year, carry a $1,000 minimum premium, and they'll have what, what I just described there between, it'll be between 85 and 90% immediate, breaking even early. You don't have to have a ton of money to make it work. And I always, I like explaining that because what I hear so often is, hey, you know, do you guys only work with people that are putting in a minimum of 100K per year? I'm like, no, like my first policy, I started with a couple hundred dollars per month, not even that, because I didn't have any money. I'm like, I'm trying to get it going, but it's possible. It's just really working with someone that knows how to do it, that's critical, but is also willing to do it. And that goes into compensation and such, which we can talk about another time. Um, but that that's the key, having someone that knows how to do it and is willing to do it and just what to look for. I went on a tangent there. First year in cash value between that 85 and 90 to 95% range. If you see that, yeah. Yeah, but that's a really, really important point, Steve, because old fashioned life insurance that maybe a lot of your listeners are thinking about is not what Steve and I are talking about. Um, which, and by the way, I think if if this is your first time hearing us, we have no financial relationship. And I am very cynical about insurance um, people. And, uh, but, but Steve is one of the few that, uh, that gets it and is one of the good ones. And, the, and so it's very important that when you are working with somebody on this project, you don't just buy a product off the shelf because if it's a product off the shelf from the majority of people, somebody is just gonna be churning a commission, right? And I, you just have to know that that's what they're doing. And as long as you understand that's the product they're selling, that's fine. But if you're trying to build a portfolio and you want insurance that you're not going to lose when you get older, when your cost of insurance goes way up because you've just gotten older, then you need to start with a product that's going to be self-sustaining. And that's really what Steve is talking about with, um, you know, not losing to costs in the early years because that cash then supports the, um, the death benefit. So, and, and I, there are uh, some individuals that I've met who are very young young business people, people who aren't even married, who are doing what Steve is 
talking about. They're starting with a small policy and they're planning for their eventual retirement, um, eventual family, et cetera. So the other thing I want to mention is that in most states, not all states, but most states, life insurance, cash value of life insurance is protected from the claims of creditors. So not only is it an income tax free product where the growth isn't subject to income tax, but it is also protected from the claims of creditors. So when, you know, to Steve's point that you don't need to be a high dollar, you know, customer for this product to work, it can work beautifully, even when it's a very small amount. Um, and even if you're just starting out. Yeah. No, appreciate you mentioning that. Thank you. So why don't we, I kind of want to loop back to something you mentioned with the family office and SERP concept where it's all within the family where uh, when, when you mention the word SERP, I immediately go to how corporations use cash value life insurance because I did it for so long and I still do it. But in the family and the concept of the family office, so if if I'm 85 years old, right? So it'd be about 50 years from now. <laughs> if I'm 85 years old, I die. And let's say I've got $30 million in death benefit that is paid to my, my trust, we'll call it, right? Because ultimately I'd want to trust being the beneficiary in that situation to go to the next generation. Really, and correct me if I'm wrong, the concept of the family office and tying the serpent to everything is we might have, you know, kids, kids, grandkids in the family that we want to continue that same pattern. I want them to take out cash value life insurance policies, continue to build them up within the business and just keep on compounding kind of like the Rockefellers did and still do really. And the importance there or the important piece in my mind would be making sure a trust is set up that really makes that makes that decision to say, hey, this amount of money is going to be purposed from the death benefit for new policies on each family member of this amount. They can add more, but if they want to take money out for anything, that's where the family office comes in. The group of people must approve it because if I'm, <laughs> if I'm 20 years old and not mature and don't know anything and I get access to a million bucks, I'm going to go blow it in a Ferrari or something like that. And then 10 years later say, why did I do that? <laughs> yeah. Right. So that, I mean, so there's the, the interesting concept of this family office idea. Um, it, and let me just back up and say, if you think about typical estate planning, there's the, well, we'll have an insurance trust. It'll buy insurance at the death of the insured. It'll go into separate trusts for each child. And then the child goes along their way and that's the end of it, right? It's just one yeah. generation. So what we, what Steve and I are talking about uh, right now, what you and I are talking about is another idea, which is instead of having it in a trust that at the death of the insured splits, it stays in trust, right? Generationally. Now there's some perpetuities issues in certain states where the longest we can leave that in place is maybe 100 years, but there are states that have gotten rid of the perpetuities period or they've extended it to 300 years like Texas has, um, which 300 years is probably long enough. Yeah. <laughs> the idea, 
here's the other thing that some of you may be thinking, um, you know, Steve, is trusts are not tax efficient vehicles, right? You reach the maximum amount of, or the maximum marginal rate of tax at $12,000 of income. So when you're thinking about this family office concept, if you aren't using insurance, then you've got an income tax issue that you have to overcome. So that's the other benefit of using these high cash value products, because let's just take your story, Steve, you know, 85 year old dies, 30 million comes in. If we invested the 30 million and it was a non-grantor trust, something I call a per se trust, then the income that's generated is subject to tax at the highest marginal rate. But if instead we took that 30 million and invested it in a number of policies on the next generation or the next two generations, then the income in that policy is not subject to tax. The cash can be accessed via loans, either from the company or withdrawal of cash or an external bank financed debt situation. So that's another thing to remember is when you're thinking about this more expanded family office in a trust, using insurance can get rid of that income tax friction. Yeah, beautiful. And it can be set up in a means where you can still have access to the cash value, especially if you, like my mind always goes to using it for a business. Like for me, for instance, I don't keep much money in, in cash just in my basic bank account because it doesn't do anything. It, you know what I mean? It just sits there. I can put it under my mattress to get the same result. But where I do like to, to position it is a cash value life insurance product for the benefits you mentioned. The credit protection is great, but really it grows tax free. I don't have to think about it. It goes nowhere but up and I can access it. So. I've got the trust benefit or the long-term trust benefit from a death benefit being passed passed on via income tax-free, but I can still access that money if the trust is set up properly. I know there's some stipulations there. You've got to do things properly with that initial setup because you can restrict money with the trust. When I say restrict money, access to cash value, cash value insurance products, correct? Right, right. And, you know, the kind of the next step to this too is building in to the trust structure, this concept of a family office, so a family constitution, mm -hmm. um, committees, how is the trustee going to be nominated? Are you going to set up a private family trust company, which, um, you know, in states like Florida, you have a good statute to do that, that isn't as um, kind of bare bones as South Dakota and you know Wyoming and some of the other states. So, so not only would you want to build in this uh, kind of financial piece, but you want to build in all of the oversight piece. So to the Rockefellers, yeah. um, you know, to that concept, you know, you if if what you're trying to do is now teach your family about financial literacy and about being a good steward and all of that, you could build that into to the process at the trust level. Yeah, and thanks for mentioning that because that's, that is more, more challenging for me. It's probably because my mind always goes to spreadsheets and numbers. So I like the financial piece, 
but in working with you personally, like, and I've expressed this to you, like what I struggled with the most was actually the call it the language and the trust. Like what happens if something happens to me? You know, how is my wife taken care of? Where does the money go? Who do we want to be our trustees and such? Setting everything up like that, that was a challenge for me. And what I liked is in working with you guys, because it was taking a while to get my questionnaire back. I'm like, I'm having a hard time with it. <laughs> is um, one of your associates, Brock, who I really like working with, he, he sent something back saying, hey, here's some suggestions. Here's what some people do. And by the way, anything you, you put down, you're not 100% locked into forever. Like one of our, our conversations, was it five years? You try and think no further ahead than five years because life's going to happen no matter what. Like things are going to change. You can't, and you don't know what's going to happen. I, I know when I was a kid, my dad used to always say that to me. He would always say, Elizabeth, this is not the last decision on this topic you're going to make. <laughs> you know, this, is the, this is the decision for today. And, um, and I think that's, you know, really important. And I think one of the things, Steve, that you, um, that, you know, you've wrestled with are, um, are, are all of those things, you know, who will I trust if I die to take care of my precious wife? Yeah. Who, who, you know, all of those emotional, very emotional topics, which are, you know, the truth of the matter, what you've said to me is, that the numbers are the numbers, but it's this emotional issue that's been the hardest to overcome. And, um, and they're really, really important things to think about, even simple things like who's going to make a medical decision for me. They need to understand, well, not only do they need to understand what you want, they need to be willing to honor it. Because for some people, and I saw it in my own family when it was time for my mom to be disconnected. She was so young. My father could not do it. Even though he knew she would not want to be there, he couldn't let go. So I was the one who had to step in and do it. So all of those things, when you're working through the planning, you have to, and, and you know, a lot of times you have to give yourself space yeah. to think about it and and to feel it and 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 you know the number one thing i always like to say is talk to the people around you you know don't let this be a surprise the first time they know that they're going to be your executor is you know at your funeral yeah. um, because what you, it's really important to have discussed it and talked about it too yeah, it is. And it's it's a challenge. I know that's usually the thing that's overlooked. You know, everyone wants to jump to the numbers. How much am I going to leave? How is it set up? But it, it it's difficult for some, at least it is for me to, to go through that. Um, or it was. I'm glad we, we got through the bulk of it. But it'll continue as time passes. Um, but it's what's helpful. And this is really just for anyone listening. If you're thinking about this in working with your group is you do give that space and help encourage one just to say, okay, here's some suggestions. Here's what people do. Not this is the way to do it. Because with me, I'm someone, if someone comes in and says, hey, here's how the plan should be set up. And I say, all right, you're the professional. I'll do it. But then I find out after the fact there are alternatives that existed. And hey, I would have went with option B. Like I'm going to be a little annoyed and come back and say like, why didn't you ever like mention that? But 
the, that's something, and I think that's why we align because I, I practice that with our business, with the cash value product, show everything and then narrow it down is I got that with your group, with you, your associates is to say, okay, here's some suggestions. Here's different ways to set it up. Never do it this way. Here's recommendations. What are you leaning toward? And that that's uh, call it my style. And we've been looking for a group that, that does that for a long time. And I say, we, me, my wife and I in our business, but it's, it's been a, a good experience. So that's kind of a shout out to you and your group. Good job. <laughs> Very, uh, you know, I'll tell you that it's hard. It's very hard to, as a planner, to not get stuck in a rut, right? Not to just do the same thing for everyone because that's the lazy way. And, um, and it is harder. And so, uh, you know, Steve, if there are other planners listening, I would encourage every planner in every industry to practice empathy, practice putting yourself in the shoes of your client and being a good listener more than a good talker, because um, that's the way that we can achieve, you know, our ultimate goal, which is to do what's best for the family, which, which is a partnership. So it's been really fun partnering, Steve, with you and Tara. Um, and that's, that's the most, and, and honestly, it's not just in what we do, right? Yeah. If you go to the dentist and the dentist doesn't listen to you, or you go to your internist and they don't listen to you, um, it's important to, to work with people who are listening. Yeah, what- uh, I, I agree. It, and something I'll, I'll always say this out loud now, because it for, before I just thought it in my head, is when I'm speaking with someone or even putting a, a marketing video together, is ask the question, if I'm you... I, and knowing, having the information that I have right now, I would want to know this, that, and this and ask the question for them a lot of times, because a lot of times they don't know, like a, a lot of information you've given over the past 30, 35 minutes, as far as different states have different rules on taxation and such credit protection, like people, people don't know that and how you keep that all in your head. I have no clue, but keep, keep it up. But that kind of stuff, just building awareness and showing someone or talking to someone about that is kind of like, oh, okay, thank you for mentioning that because I would have just gone this route because my dad did it or someone else did it. So I do enjoy that type of planning or call it sales process. I know it's not sales, but just a, an education process, listening, providing options, and then you know everyone's happy and you're set up properly with whatever it is when you're moving forward. Right. And you're set up properly for five years. Five <laughs> years from now, you need to look at it again. Yep. Because things, you know, the one thing, the only thing we know for sure is that things will change. Yep. Right. No. <laughs> That's the only thing we know for sure. No, no matter what. Well, this has been fun. No, I, I learned a lot. I always like talking about these bigger picture planning scenarios with the family office concept. It, it's so interesting to me how it all ties together with what corporations do. They're really just taking that model and applying it to themselves for a profitability standpoint. It, right. When I look at the corporations and then you've got business owners that really care, they view their business as family. I do like if anything happens to me, I want my wife to be okay. And then also I want all the employees, especially the ones that started when we weren't making anything and trying to get going. Like I want them taken care of and the business is, is there so they can, can have ownership as time passes. But you know, right. and yeah. I was, um, you know, the, you know, building on that point a little bit too is 
the uh, the other thing that I love about these, um, you know, using life insurance to fund these non-qualified plans is a lot of our ERISA plans have very strict rules that won't necessarily let you benefit um, to the extent that you want yeah. all of your employees. So one of the things I love about that is those, uh, you know, people who are, and I'm not going to say they're the only thoughtful business owners, but, you know, I, I'm kind of at that age where I'm getting older now. And so I think about these things, you know, if I put a plan like this in place for all of my employees and I was to sell my business, it would be a way to guarantee that my employees who had been with me forever would have a benefit, even if there was a new owner. So I think uh, that, you know, that's the other thing that just feels so good at, about using these kinds of plans is it's not just for executives. It can be used on a much broader basis because you're not restricted by ERISA. So whatever the business wants to do, they can do. And I have a question I wanted to ask you, Steve, though, on that point was key man insurance yep. and how you would structure um, a key man product, whether you would do it in the business, whether you would do it outside the business on a cross purchase. Yeah. If you were going to do that structuring, what, what would you do? Good question. So I'll first have a conversation with the business owner and if they have an advisor there to kind of get a sense of what their plans are short term and long term, because things do change. And really in talking to them, I don't want to say completely what their preference is, but whatever the, the preference is or what their comfort level is, I'm going to show them the pros and cons of both. I mean, owning it in the business. I mean, it's all in the company. But if you sell the business. Right. Right. So, I mean, you could have some issues there. So I would I would consult with their advisors or bring in someone like you to kind of build more awareness there as well and just add some bullet points. But we go over the key benefits there to say, OK, you've got the key man product. You can do it with a non-qualified deferred comp plan. I mean, you have the death benefit there right off the bat, but really seeing what's the best way to set it up from a comfort level standpoint. And I know that's more emotional than numbers, but that stuff's important. Like if someone... If that's important to them to go with whatever structure, then we're going to do that and accommodate the best we can. Yeah, I, I and I was <laughs> because I'm I'm thinking more and more about, um, you know, because we have we're in an in a kind of an economic cycle where now co companies are going public and companies are being sold, blah blah blah. So in the same way that we've been stripping out uh, intellectual property, you know, maybe using a trust structure. For key man products makes more sense than the old fashioned, just kind of knee jerk, let's buy it in the company or let's each of the owners buy a policy on each other. There might even be more of a non-qualified plan concept of using a trust that I'm starting to think might make sense. So I was just curious about whether you had thought about that. Yeah, I've talked to, I remember there's an insurance executive at one of the companies um, with a bank we work with that looked at a, a bully purchase, but 
they were looking at a non-qualified or we discussed the idea of a non-qualified deferred comp plan. And with banks, they've got some regulations where you can't you can't own it as a bank. You can't do that with traditional products or run into a bunch of red tape. It's not fun. Um, but just in that conversation, the conversation came up like technically, I mean, you could do it. I mean, it might be some work if you have a trust own it outside of the bank. There's ways you can do it in that capacity. We didn't do anything, but just as we looked at the different models, they're interested from the retention standpoint, building the cash value, having access to it, where a BOLI is just a lump sum payment and you don't have access to it. Um, but it's come up before. I didn't. We didn't do it, but I mean, I've I've discussed that before with with people that knew knew what they were talking about. Yeah, and I I've been thinking about it too more. Uh, for dentists and doctors, gotcha. because you know, if they're looking for an asset protection mechanism, that might even be something that they could do inside their practice, and it would be a way to attract young doctors and dentists. So, yeah. anyway, I I I'm, I haven't really thought that all the way through, but I was just curious whether yeah. you had been thinking about it as well. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, my thing is <laughs> there's a lot of ways to do things that I look at from an efficiency standpoint, say, hey, this is going to give you the best bang for your buck. But then going back, going back to listening to people like there's times we've looked at putting policies and trusts and the individual states like I just want to own it from an individual perspective. I get the consequences, but it's going to be way easier. I've got access to the online portal. Maybe I'll put it in a trust later. Like I get it. So, I mean, building awareness around the pros and cons of that. But again, thinking if I'm them, if I say, well, this is the benefit, do it this way. And they try and force it on me. <laughs> I'm going to go work with someone else. I'm like, see you later. Like it's not going to fit. So I, I've always got a, a personal thing where show them what's in their best interest, but don't, don't be overly pushy. If you do that, you're going to turn people off. It would turn me off. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And that's really not our job. Our job is to give all the information yeah. and allow them to make their own decision. Definitely. So. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time as, as always for everyone listening. We've got Elizabeth's contact info below. Feel free to contact her, her office anytime. And that's all we have today. Do you have anything else before I just wrap up? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't. It was so nice visiting with you, Steve. I could just talk to you forever. So Thanks for including me today. Likewise. Well, thank you so much. And we will talk to you next time. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye.